words, they say that saving faith doesn't necessarily make you make you righteous. Well, that is exactly what the Gnostics were teaching in the day of the early church. That's exactly why John wrote this letter. He confronted that. Now they, they drew these Gnostics drew a distinction between our our material body, our physical body, and and the spirit that lives within us. So if you confronted them, you know, why why do you keep visiting that, that prostitute? And they would have said, Well, that, that's just my body. My spirit is not tainted by that sin. That's that's just my body. And John is saying, Well, that is absolutely ridiculous. He's saying that is nonsense. And he says in chapter three, verse verse seven, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. And the key word being practices. The key word is being dominated by sin. We all sin. I'm not saying we're perfect. But is this our direction? Are we practicing righteousness or are we practicing unrighteousness? Those who practice uh, unrepentant sin, persistent sin, are not born again. And because we all know sin is still here with us, remaining sin, we call it, these verses claiming true children of God do not keep on sinning can, can sometimes be disheartening at times. We who are believers, and we do struggle with sin, we can, we can be disheartened at times. Why? Why am I struggling with this particular sin? But yet, as we have often seen, John does not teach that Christians can be sinless, but he's emphasizing the, rather the freedom that we have from the, the domination of sin. And if you desire to confess your sins, if you are eager to repent of your sins, you can, you can be sure that it is, not, it is not dominating you. You are not a slave to that, to that sin. And that's all that John is saying in the verse 18. We know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we respond when we do sin? Is it something you sweep under the carpet, you don't feel too bad about? Or is it something that you repent of? Something that you, you feel bad about? And you turn to Christ as a result. So we know that no one who is born of God lives in sin. The second point this morning, in verse 19, is that we know that we are from God. We know that we are from God. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So throughout the letter, John has has drawn a sharp line between believers and the world, Christians and non-Christians. There is no category, there is no room for this gray area, there is no middle category. He doesn't talk about nominal Christianity at all in this passage. People who say they're Christians, but they got one foot in the world, and they got one foot in the church. That is not an option here in this letter. Either you are of God, John says, and separate from this evil world, or you are of this world 
and you lie in the arms of the evil one. John describes the world in, in 1 John chapter 2. Turn there with me if you would. 1 John chapter 2. In verse 16. He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Notice the three phrases there that he uses. The first one is the, the lust of the flesh. The second one is the, the lust of the eyes. And the third one is this boastful pride of life. And he says, people who are characterized by those three things are not from the Father. They are not believers. They are not Christians. You know, believers must not live to gratify the flesh. Believers must not live to pursue the, the outward material things that the world is devoted to. That is not what we should be known for. That's what unbelievers are known for. You know, the truth is, folks, life is short. It really does hang by a thread. And if we take pride in this life or in this evil world, and we trust in the things that are, are perishing, we will stand before God empty-handed. We will stand before God even guilty of running after the world. Only that which is eternal is worth pursuing. And in verse 19, John describes the whole world as lying in the power or in the arms of the evil one. Now just try and imagine that. Try and picture that for a moment. What John is describing here. He's not describing you know, people who are frantically trying to be released from this, these arms. These, these captives are not desperately trying to escape, escape this, this dictator. Rather the picture he's, he's giving us here is of people who are lying quietly in the evil clutches, you know, oblivious to their, to their situation, oblivious to their predicament. It's a tragic predicament. They're not wanting even to be released. They, they're quite comfortable in the arms of their, of their captive. And they lie quietly. And the God of this world has blinded their eyes. He's blinded their, their minds. And they can even wear t-shirts that say, well, life is good. But they are oblivious. They are oblivious that they are wandering, wandering perilously close to the edge of the pit where they will spend eternity away from God. They don't realize that in due time their, their, foot, their, their foot could easily slip and fall into this pit. That they will face God one day at the judgment seat. But instead they are peacefully sleeping. Peacefully resting in the arms of the evil one who is going to destroy them. And in contrast is the believers of God. In contrast to that, in comparison to that are the believers of God. And this means that, that Christ gave himself for our sins. So that he might rescue us from this 
present evil age. We came to be released from this evil dictator, the one who holds the world in his arms. Paul wrote about this in Colossians chapter 1. In verse 13 he said, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We have a new master. We are free from that evil master. We belong to God and we serve Him and Him alone. He has given us a new life. So that in in every sense we are of God. We belong to God. And our lives need to be God-centered. Our lives need to be God-focused. Our lives need to be characterized by the, the very nature of God. We should be taking every thought captive to the obedience of God. We shouldn't be entertaining what the world is wanting us to hear, wanting us to see, wanting us to dwell on. We should be taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And John says that we know this. Though we may know this, I don't think this is always the case. This is something that may be intellectual. But it's not, unfortunately, something that happens practically, even if we claim to be born again. But when we look at your life and, and your morals and your, your conduct, sometimes people can't even discern whether those people are truly Christians or not. They don't see the difference between you and the world. They don't see the difference between people's version of Christianity and the biblical version of Christianity. I remember a story that I think it was Sinclair Ferguson. He was a pastor in Scotland. He shared that he went to a he preached at a men's breakfast the one morning at the church, and one of the members of the church came to him afterwards with a friend that he invited to the to the meeting, and he said to the pastor, "Pastor, here's a friend of mine that I've been working with for ten years. He came to the meeting, and he said we've been." working together in the same company for 10 years. And he didn't know I was a Christian, and I didn't know he's a Christian. And we came together today. Isn't that wonderful? And the pastor looked at this man and said to him, No, brother, that is terrible. And he said to him, You need to be born again if that's the case. If he didn't know that you're a Christian, there's a problem. John says, we will know that we are Christian. And that implies other people will know as well, surely. Is there a fundamental difference between your priorities and the goals of those of your non-Christian neighbors? I mean, do people see a difference? Are you living for God and His glory and His kingdom? Or do you just attend church services a little more than the rest of the population. It goes without saying, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John adds a, a third certainty. In verse 20, he says, we know him who is true. And that's my third point. We know him who is true. 
So John's third affirmation is, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal life. So here he's, he's closing his letter. He's closing this epistle by reminding us of one final thing we as God's children should know. And how this knowledge is to determine our behavior. And we've said that all throughout this letter. Our belief will affect our behavior. Notice there the word and at the beginning of verse 20. For those grammar students out there, this is what we call a conjunction. A conjunction connects words, okay? Um, And here and is connecting verse 20 to verse 19. And it's contrasting. It's contrasting the blind indifference of the world. The world is not interested in the things of God. The world are captive to the evil one. The world is in slavery to their sin. But verse 20, as believers we have a new understanding. We are free from this bondage of sin. And John writes, and we know that the Son of God has come. We have received this information, not just as information, but it has changed our lives. We have believed the truth of the gospel. We have believed the very doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is truth that we have embraced. The divine son has has come into the world. He took on human flesh. Remember, this was denied by the, the Gnostic false teachers. The people that John was confronting throughout this epistle. They did not believe that Jesus came in the flesh, that the Son of God came in the flesh. But those of us who are born again, we embrace this truth. And those with faith and assurance will continue to accept this incarnation teaching. This is part and parcel, fundamental to the Christian faith. And John continues writing that this Son has not only come, He's also given us understanding. Isn't that wonderful? He has given us understanding. Without the supernatural gift of understanding, we cannot know God. We will never know God. Remember, our minds are, are darkened. Our minds are captive to the, the world system. But now God has come. He has opened up our eyes. He has opened, us, opened up our understanding. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised, spiritually blind. And this divine gift of understanding brings us into a personal relationship with the only true God, the living God, so that we can know him. And here John uses a different word for know here, which means to know experientially. And there's a great difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing the person himself. And through the understanding that Christ gives, we 
We come personally to know Him who is true. And the word true means genuine. It means authentic. And we realize that He is the only true God. He is the only genuine God. All other gods are false. They are imposters. They are fake. All roads do not lead to heaven. John adds this, we are in him who is true. Jesus himself said, I am the truth. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Only those who are abiding in Christ have this privilege, this relationship that John has spoken of so often. We dwell in God through His Son, Jesus Christ. No other way. And he's summarizing this book. Remember this, folks. And what he's saying at the end is is very important for us to, to see what he's trying to teach us, what he's emphasizing here. The very deity of Jesus Christ. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a good man. He was God himself. John adds, this is the true God and eternal life. John 17 verse 3 comes to mind in the gospel. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know personally the only true God through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you don't know Him You don't have eternal life. All those that are in Christ are saved. What are we saved from? We talked about it this morning in our evangelism class. We are saved from the judgment of our sins. We are saved from what we deserve. We are saved from the consequences of our sin. And instead we get to enjoy This abundant life that God promises. What a wonderful trade, isn't it? We give God our sin and He gives us His grace. He gives us His mercy. God takes on our punishment. He takes on what we deserve and we receive freedom. That doesn't seem like a fair trade, isn't it, folks? But that's exactly what happened. God takes the punishment that we deserve. And instead we get grace. And we can rest in this assurance of eternal life. We don't have to pay for it. We don't have to earn it. God gives it freely to those who call upon the name of His Son. On the name of the only Savior of the world. Jesus Christ. Now I'm still amazed at the grace of God. We, we sang that song this morning. And I'm so thankful we did. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I wonder if you are amazed still at the wonderful grace that saved you from your sins. If someone was to ask you to share your testimony, would you share it with joy that Christ has given you this wonderful grace that you did not deserve? I hope you are amazed by that. I know I was undeserving of His mercies, and yet He loved me enough to provide a The way, the only way of salvation. And it isn't available just to to me, folks. It's available for all of us. 
if we're willing to humble ourselves to the truth of the Word of God, to the revealed Word of God, and put our faith in what God has said, put our faith in Jesus Christ, we can enjoy this security. We can enjoy this relationship with Christ the Lord, regardless of what anxieties and what fears we face in this life. God has promised this privilege. My last point this morning in verse 21. As he concludes, he puts in this verse, Guard yourselves from idols. Look at verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols or guard yourselves from idols. And for the last time, John addresses himself to his readers and he calls them little children. But there's a warning here. This is a warning. Keep yourselves from idols. And some commentators I've read suggested that there should not have been a a gap between verse 20 and verse 21. They say that should have been one verse. Because John is making a contrast between the false gods and and the true God. Remember the, the heretics. Remember the audience that would have heard this for the first time. The heretics would deny the true God. They denied that Jesus came in the flesh. And they said that the Christ came, he came upon the man Jesus at his baptism, and left just before his, his crucifixion. But they did not believe that he was eternal God in human flesh. This was a false teaching. And in light of their false God, it's natural that John gives this warning one last time. Guard yourselves against these false idols, these false versions of Christ that man has invented. And an idol, in this sense, is anything that substitutes for the true faith. Anything that robs Christ of his full humanity and his full deity. Any human idea that claims to be more authoritative than the Bible... Anything that man invents that's outside of the Bible is idolatry. And that's what John is warning against. Of course, it is also possible that that John was giving a literal warning against idolatry. Remember, this church was going to be read, sorry, this letter was going to be read by by the church in Ephesus. And we know the city had been given over to the worship of, of idols. In the city of Ephesus, they had the Temple of Diana. It was one of the ancient wonders of the ancient world. It was here in Ephesus. And this warning, of course, had special application to the people living in in Ephesus. Remember the silversmiths in Acts chapter 19. They made a good living by making silver statues of this pagan idol. So the Christians were surrounded by idolatry. And Christians were, were, were under tremendous pressure to conform to the world. If you travel today anywhere in, in the East, you will more than likely come across temples or shrines to idols. In India, where we first ministered, there was a famous temple to the, the Hindu goddess Mahalakshmi. And I remember one afternoon while 
Carrie and I were traveling on the train back to Kolapur where we lived. We met another family with a, a baby boy that they were going they were going to visit this goddess Mahalakshmi and give her an offering. And they told us that that they were from the north of India, but they had visited Kolapur a few years back and they had prayed to this to the statue, Mahalakshmi, for a baby. And they believed their prayers were answered by Mahalakshmi. And now they were going to give her a thanksgiving offering. And what they were going to do is put their baby on a scale, and whatever the weight of their baby was, they had to give gold, the equivalent, as an offering to this goddess, Mahalakshmi. If they couldn't afford the gold, they could give rice, or they could give sugar. But this is what they would do as a thanksgiving offering. Of course, our hearts were were terribly burdened. And we tried to convince this family that their prayers were answered, but not by a statue made from gold and silver. Their prayer was answered by the true and living God, Yeshua. And it was heartbreaking to see this, as people would go and worship objects, And Exodus 20 verse 3 clearly teaches us, and we've looked at that, that there is only one God. We must never set up anything else in His place. Now there are still people who do this today, even in the 21st century. And if you are from the West, you may be tempted to think, well, I don't have that problem. We don't have statues. We don't have shrines. We don't have temples. We don't have that problem. We don't bow down before imagined gods. Well, be careful with that thinking, okay? Be careful. A.W. Tozer defined idolatry well. He said, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. This means... We can make our own idols, folks. We don't have to have it physically in front of us. It can be here in our minds. Here in our minds. I read a news. Uh, I read an article from Newsweek magazine that came out many years ago. And the article was about how these treasure hunters were looking to make a huge profit, but they were stealing idols from the the. the the, the Hopi Reservation, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. There was a reservation in the U.S. close to the, the Grand Canyon National Park. And they were saying the worst theft happened in 1978 when, when these thieves took four ancient stick figures that represented the most sacred deities of their religion. And this is what they said. Without the idols, there could be no Hopi rituals, the article stated. And without the rituals, the tribe's spiritual life was in danger of extension. And the tribal leader explained that these cer- ceremonies would, would bring blessings in rainfall, bountiful crops, good health, and long life that is being lost to us because of these idols that are now gone. I mean, what a sad way to live. What a sad description of, of idolatry. You make up your own gods and then somebody steals them. And your life is now destroyed. You know, if, if, the, if your God can be taken away from you, 
It is not the true God, folks. If it can be stolen from you, it is not the true God. If it can be burnt, it is not the true God. If it can be damaged in an accident, it is not the true God. If it can be wasted, it is not the true God. We need to make sure that even if we claim to follow Him as born again Christians, that we don't fall into idolatry. We don't fall into the the trap of using Him to get what we want or accepting parts of Him that you think you like and, and rejecting the parts that you don't like. That is pagan idolatry, folks. No difference. And ultimately, idolaters make up their own gods to suit their own desires and their own preferences. They do not submit to the God who has been revealed to us in Scripture. The God who has revealed Himself to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's why John says here, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And what he's implying here, I mean, he refers to us again as little children. Isn't that interesting? And he's implying that we are vulnerable to this. That we are weak. And we need to guard ourselves from this. Anything that people elevate above God is an idol of the heart. Remember, Israel was condemned for worshipping the temple rather than the God who directed Solomon to build the temple. And that's true for all of us today, folks. We often fall into a trap of of worshipping something that we can see, something that we can touch, something that we can hold. We worship a person. We worship a priest. We worship a building. We worship our culture. We worship our parents. We worship our wives, our Children, our husbands. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, that every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God must be smashed. Only Christ must be exalted. There's so much application here this morning as we come to the end of this letter. But is God the center of your being? That's the first question I want to ask this morning. Is God the center of your being? Does He consume your your heart? What are those things that you put in place of the living God? Could it be your security? Could it be your your comfort? What are you consumed with? Do you pursue work to the point of neglecting your family or neglecting your private worship? And even your your public worship of the Lord. Perhaps you are tempted to worship at the altar of physical beauty. Or at the altar of, of sensuality. Maybe that's your idol. All you need to do is ask a friend. Ask a friend. Ask a friend if they can see anything in your life that you might have made into an idol. We often have these blinders on, but I challenge you to do that this week. And at the root of all 
At the root of all of this is the idol of self. Is the idol of self. You know, the idolater has not yielded the throne of his life to the true God. He will not do that. He will not humble himself. He will not, he will not confess Jesus is Lord. He wants to be Lord. He wants his will to be done. He wants his way to be done. And he tries to use God for whatever he wants. Just like a genie in a bottle. And if God delivers, he puts that God back on the shelf and he continues to worship that God until the next time he needs something. And then he uses it again. Just like, when, just like in India. You know, they have over 333 million gods in the, in the Hindu pantheon. And you can pick and choose which God you want to worship depending on what you need. And Ganesh, the, the god with the elephant's head, he was very famous because he was the god of love. If you wanted your husband to love you, if you wanted love in your family, if you wanted love, you would worship this god. And you'd take him off the shelf and worship him and get what you want and put him back. If you wanted money, you'd take Mahalakshmi and you would worship her. And when you get what you want, you'd put her back. If you want somebody to be judged for their sins, you'd call upon Hanuman. There were all these idols. And that's what we do, isn't it, at times? Use God to get whatever we want. If God delivers, then fine, we'll continue to come to church. But if He doesn't deliver, if He doesn't give me what He wants, oh, He's going to be in trouble. He's going to be in trouble. If He doesn't answer my prayer, I'm going to shop around for a better God who gives me what I want. Ultimately, the idolater will not submit to the true and living God. He will not submit to the will of the true and living God. We need to, this morning, examine our hearts. All of us who claim to be born again Christians, are we truly trusting in the God that's been revealed in the Scriptures? Do we know Him as being revealed to us in the Scriptures? Are we reading? Are we enjoying Him? Or are we just trying to use God to get happiness or peace or a better life? And how many churches today or even on Sunday will preach this false gospel, this health, wealth and prosperity gospel? It's an idol. It's an idol. God gives you what you want. That's not what the Bible teaches he gives us what we need, folks. And we can trust His character. Now, let me just conclude this morning as we come to the end of this book. I've really enjoyed our time moving through this letter of John. I found great encouragement and many exhortations you know, to my own life, how I can please the Lord better. But the truth is we, we are in difficult days, folks. We live in the middle of difficult days. And they will continue to get worse. And if we are to overcome this world, we must be abiding in Christ. Our lives must be lived in light of God's holy standard. We need to, be keep, we need to keep on confessing our sin. We need to be engaging in continual prayer. We need to be encouraged to do this, folks. And not forsake the gathering of the saints. 
We've seen love as a, a major theme throughout this letter. And I hope we will sense the need for, for love amongst ourselves and in, in the world around us. And the truth is we will never reach the lost. And we will never encourage one another or serve the Lord apart from this agape love that John has spoken of. You know, we, we all have room for improvement, folks. No matter what church we go to, no matter who we are, no matter what level we are in our walk with the Lord, there is always room for improvement. But I want to encourage you folks that we are to measure our lives by the standards of the Word of God. Not to compare ourselves to that person or this person or that, that, that church or this church. Compare ourselves to the Word of God. Is our love what it should be when measured by the Word of God? This epistle was written to challenge us and to strengthen the believer, the person who is in Christ, the person who does know God as his Lord and Savior. John spoke much concerning this personal relationship with Christ. He even gave us signs and marks that we could know for sure that we are saved. So as we close this morning, I want to ask you one last time, do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you confident this morning that if you were to die today, you would be in the presence of the Lord? If you don't have this confidence, I beg with you, please come and speak with us. Please come and speak to one of the elders. Let us show you from the Word of God how you can be sure that you are right with God, that you are in Christ. Christ came to save. He came to save us from our sins. He came to save us from the judgment of our sins. And he wants us to be confident in this wonderful truth this morning. Seek the Lord as he leads you today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thankful, Lord, for what you have been teaching us these past few months, how we can know you better, how we can be sure, how we can be confident in our relationship with you. We pray, Lord, that this will be true of everybody here this morning. Lord, I do pray that your spirit would do the work that needs to be done amongst us. Pray, Lord, that he would grant repentance, that he would grant faith, that he would grant even comfort to those who need to be comforted today. Lord, we need you. Lord, we don't need to depend on ourselves. We don't need to depend on idols. We don't need to create things that are in our own minds. We need to just trust you. We need to rely on you. We need to depend more on you. And we pray for your help to do that. Lord, do your work that needs to be done this morning. For the sake of your great name and for the joy of your people, we pray this prayer. Amen.